It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome to another episode of Hard Hats and High Viz. Uh, we are now, I believe, in week 16. G'day, Hong Kong Jack. How are you today? Uh, hot, and, hot and streamy up here. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Bit of climate think, change, mate. I think we... Severe hit, weather event. We have a thing here called the heat index, which is the temperature plus the effect of humidity, etc. and it hit 47 yesterday. I think, so. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. Mm. Um, uh, you'll, be, uh, you'll be grateful for the air conditioning. Hope it's working uh, at its optimum for you. Mm. Um, look, uh, as we do with all intros in this program, we just remind our listeners that uh, if you uh, enjoy a little bit of back and forth banter on current events in Australian politics and media and society and sport, then give us a um, give us a review on your podcast app. Hopefully, it'll be four or five stars. But we're not going to tell you what to do. And if you do have any questions, any issues that uh, that, have, uh, that we've raised in the program or, in, or indeed stuff that you would like us to raise in the program, drop us a line at conditionalreleaseprogram at gmail.com or you can hit me up at uh, on Twitter on at JackTheInsider uh, and uh, my DMs are always open, but it might take me a day or so to get to you. All right, Jack. Uh, there was an interview in The Australian uh, with the uh, former... Uh, Secretary of State of the United States in the Nixon administration, Mr. Kiss Doctor, in fact, Doctor Doctor Kissinger, at ninety nine, mm. he has urged Australia to remain close to the US, uh, but believes that the government should engage in dialogue with China. That's all pretty straightforward, isn't it? Well, Doctor Kissinger was the person who went across to see. Um, uh, the Chinese before Nixon uh, paid that first visit to China. So he's sort of the author of the modern relationship with China. Yeah, look, in many ways. I mean, uh, if we remember, he was denounced fairly uh, severely uh, <coughs> and um, uh, certainly had a fair bit to do. I believe Kissinger and Ford were in Jakarta um, the day of uh, the uh, the Indonesian invasion of East Timor, he was involved with Nixon in the secret war of Cambodia. Shouldn't he be a little bit worried about travelling to Holland, Jack? Oh, travelling to the so. Netherlands? Yeah, you know, he's okay. 99, he'll be fine. <laughs> well, um, he's uh, certainly got got some got some blood in his hands. So I do remember Alan Jones, the uh, broadcaster, Alan Jones, saying he was one of the great minds of uh, uh, the great uh, um, geopolitical minds of our times. And you think, mate, look, he, he did a lot of things that was so suspect. But his message is pretty good, isn't it? You know, I mean, and, and it is and it is a lead for Australia to follow. I mean, I don't think it's a particularly unique idea, but that we speak with the Chinese, but we retain our um, very strong alliance with the United States. Yeah, well, I think that's just pretty conventional approach, yeah. Yeah, because if we go back just a little while, 
we weren't engaging in dialogue at all, were we? I mean, well, the dialogue that was <laughs> that was being conducted was done by a bullhorn, either from the Home Affairs Minister or Defence Minister, who went on to become Defence Minister, that is the current opposition leader, Peter Dutton, or Scott Morrison. This isn't... This wasn't peculiar to Australia, I might add. Um, this dates back to around 2017 when there was a change in the Chinese approach to diplomacy. Yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> in Deng Xiaoping's day, um, uh, when he was running the show in China, he had a, an approach which he called um, biding our time and hiding our strengths. Mm. Um, and, and, and that survived the end of Deng's time uh, and right up until about 2017 when President Xi Jinping decided it was time to move on from that um, and they adopted a, a more aggressive um, approach to diplomacy. Um, some people has, have called it the wolf warrior approach, which is named after a Chinese movie, I, I believe. Um, uh, but, they were, but they certainly did become more aggressive um, and they were not just, not just aggressive to the Australians, but they were aggressive in PNG and Sweden and everywhere else, really, everywhere around Southeast Asia. Um, and, and, and that has led to a more fractious relationship between uh, the Chinese and a number of other countries, most other countries, since then. Is it a case of, a, of a, an emerging power muscling up now? That's oh, basically it, isn't it? It's a little bit of that, yes. Emerging yeah, yeah. economic and military power, and 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 just a change of approach that the new president, or the then relatively new president in, pre, in, in Xi Jinping, undertook. So that's just a. You know, these things happen in countries all around the world. You know, people have a, a, a slightly different approaches, leadership changes. Mm. And uh, it is our largest trading partner, of course, by some measure. So it is a relationship that Australia needs to get right. Very that important It doesn't mean cap in hand stuff, but that does mean that you conduct your diplomacy behind closed doors, Jack. As, as, much, as, you, as much as you are able to. That's a little bit difficult when there is an absence of ministerial um, contact. And, um, and I think that... Uh, it would be a mistake to say that the absence of that ministerial contact was all on Australia's side. No, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. But the phone didn't ring. <laughs> well, no, the phone rang, but it rang out yes. uh, from Australia for a very long time. Uh, so that, that relationship needs to be improved. The big story around at the moment is uh, foot and mouth disease. Uh, and uh, obviously it's uh, been found in Bali and throughout Indonesia as well. Uh, it potentially catastrophic economic impact. The report has just been uh, uh, issued and how it would affect Western Queensland, for ex for example, just Western Queensland. Not a, not a huge population there, but there would be thirty four thousand jobs lost. There's a lot One, of cattle. There's a lot of cattle in Western Queensland. Not, not a lot of few, people, but yeah, fewer people. But one point one billion dollar hit to Central and Western Queensland. Alone, and and the figure of fifty billion has been uh, bandied about, um, uh, and that report was commissioned by the Regional Development Australia, Central and Western Queensland, showing a devastating impact. The arrival of foot and mouth disease. I do know Jack, and you would know too, possibly that it, it has been detected um, in. Uh, um, border crossings, entry into Australia from Indonesia, uh, it certainly hasn't got out into into uh, uh, the wider community and out into the farms. Um, 
<clears throat> but um, uh, there is some uh, difference between the opposition's approach and the government approach. The government approach is to impose biosecurity measures at the border, basically in airports, uh, while uh, opposition leader Peter Dutton has called for the borders to be closed uh, to keep foot and mouth disease from infecting Australian livestock. Uh, which approach is right, Jack? Um, well, I think a little bit of caution's in order uh, with regard to this. I wouldn't be closing the borders. Um, but there's always a bit of politics playing with these things. Yeah, uh, and, some, and sometimes people do act a bit quickly. I can recall... I can't think of his name now, um, a, a, a Queensland chap who was Minister for Ag in, I think, in the uh, Rudd or Gillard governments who stopped all of the live transport of cattle at one stage pretty yes. precipitously. Um, uh, and that was on the basis of uh, animal cruelty concerns. Yeah, but he sort of just cut it off immediately and, and that caused a whole lot of disruption and had little effect on the animal cruelty situation. Mm. So um, I, I think you can act too quickly. Um, uh, I think that you basically need to. I should know that chap's name. His dad's his dad's a power broker in Brisbane. Um, um, uh, yes, he was. Uh, he, he was one from the old, uh, he's one from the old from the, Labor right faction, the, wasn't the, he? The AWU faction. They had their own faction in Queensland. Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Look, I... I look, I can see the fellow, but I can't remember his name. Yeah. Uh, not a memorable, not a memorable decision, though. But no. uh, Peter, no, so, so, so I think you can move too quickly, um, mm. uh, and 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 I don't think the, I think the government's probably approach is probably right about this is to is to have a look at the biosecurity, see where it's going, and then if you have to ramp it up, no one no one wants to close off the tourism industry with Bali and Indonesia. Well, that's just it. I, I mean, I've seen a number of agriculture, um, oh, Department of Agriculture. Um, employees, senior fellows talk about how we do not want to, uh, uh, how any decision can't really uh, uh, be cast across other industries like tourism. Um, uh, the Balinese have been battling uh, with COVID. It would be a, a, a real blow to them too. But this is a $50 billion industry. Let me just quote you, Peter Dutton. Uh, in, on radio today, told 2GB, I believe the borders should be closed, absent the information the government's got. If there's an argument why the border shouldn't be closed, that's for the Prime Minister to make. If he's got a reason, then let him explain it. Gee, that's just dripping in politics, isn't it? It's basically saying, look, uh, you close, we should close the borders, uh, but I don't have the information on which to close the borders. Um, but he's, then he just puts it straight on um, on Albanese to uh, the Prime Minister to uh, explain himself. Well, it's just pretty much classic opposition politics. It's fine as far as I'm concerned. But you know, that's not alarmist, that Jack. Well, a little bit, but it's that's that's opposition politics. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So agricultural uh, agriculture minister Murray Watt. I've been watching his career emerge over over the last five or six years. Uh, Murray Watt told the, the ABC that Australia still remained free from foot and mouth disease, but that the travelling public would need to do the right thing. If there's one message I can leave, it is that Australia remains foot and mouth disease free. He said, we have absolutely no evidence at all that the virus is in Australia. Now, that's contrary to what uh, we might call a, um, a port or a, or a border crossing, an airport, uh, where I believe it has been found. 
he also said that the, that authorities were now risk profiling 100% of passengers returning from Indonesia. Those are the sorts of measures that are required. And a tougher compliance regime has been implemented at all airports. Mr Watt said that at Melbourne Airport on Saturday, there were around 3,700 passengers coming in from Indonesia who would be checked by authorities. He said, while there is a risk that a traveller could bring this back from Bali, that risk is much lower than meat products being brought into the country. That's also a very serious concern. Uh, He also provided an assurance that it was not necessary to shut the border with Indonesia. That measure is not needed, he said. There are foot and mouth disease outbreaks in about 70 countries in the world at the moment. That's a stat that I did not know. Uh, He went on to say, industry is united in saying we should not close the border. Now, uh, Dan Tian, his shadow minister, has uh, said uh, the reverse. But Dan Tian was talking about um, um, uh, constituents in Wannan down in Victoria. Um, uh, But... uh, This is, you know, there is an extraordinary threat. If there is a foot and mouth disease outbreak in Australia, our exports just stop there and then. Yeah, one of the things that that, that I think governments have not done well enough in Australia is explaining to to travellers arriving in Australia why we have what seem to be bizarre biosecurity requirements to enter the country and biosecurity checks. Um, uh, Australia's been almost uniquely well-placed because it's an island continent in remaining free from a lot of these diseases that affect agricultural industries. Um, And that's why we take um, the rather extraordinary precautions we do take with arrivals from overseas. But we've just never done much about Apart from that rather ridiculous show, Border, border Force, whatever it's called, uh, Border Patrol, um, yeah. we've never done much to explain why we do that. A, a veterinary professor, Professor Merriweather, uh, she was actually largely responsible for the response in the UK in 2000. 2001, I think, their um, FMD outbreak there, absolutely devastating for industry. She actually spent some time in Australia as the... Um, um, veterinary official for New South Wales and she was saying just that you have to communicate Uh, that's the government's role you have to establish with people we know we do know Jack that not everyone who travels from Australia to Bali would be described as the sharpest tools in the shed but it is important to let them know uh, that uh, that they uh, run the risk of bringing this disease back into the country particularly by by, uh, importing or or, or, or travelling with meat products or indeed uh, some viruses on the soles of their shoes. Communication is absolutely critical to tell people, listen, be, be at your best here. I think that's a fair assessment of the travels to Bali. Uh, I believe there's no written test required to enter. Um, <laughs> written request. <laughs> yeah. uh, they do say that the, uh, the, red eye, the red eye to Bali is uh, not a good flight to catch, Jack. No, a bit of a disruption. I, I, I grew up on the New South Wales Victorian border in a fruit growing area, um, and fruit fly. Had, yeah, and we had the fruit fly checks. Um, mm. So to cross the border at at, at Albury Wodonga or um, uh, at uh, Yarrawonga Malwala, 
uh, it was like going through Checkpoint Charlie when I was it a was, kid. It was, yeah. You know, um, you had to uh, had the little pull. You had to pull into the side, and they a, loca- the a local would have the uh, the sticker. I remember uh, the locals would have the, the, the sticker. The orange, the orange sticker. Yes, yeah, yeah, go straight through. It meant you go straight through, but everybody else. It was like crossing Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. Um, yeah. uh, uh, but everyone understood what that was about. That, that's because the communication was quite good, that we had these valuable fruit-growing areas in Victoria that had no fruit fly, and that would cause a lot of disruption and a lot of losses. So people said, okay, we'll put up with that, but you've got to explain what's going on. Yeah, indeed. You know, that's the critical thing. I, I, you, you would think it was an absolute last resort to close uh, to close uh, off uh, Indonesia to Australian travellers uh, coming there and back and uh, be absolutely devastating for Bali. It would have to be a last resort. I'd have to sell my Bintang shares, you know. <laughs> yeah, have you got the shirt? Have you got the T-shirt? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of those things. You do come back with Bali <laughs> with a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah, um, or, 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 or the or the Chang shirt from Thailand or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I never had the Bintang, but I did have a Chang shirt for a very long time there. Um, um, Josh Frydenberg has landed at Saks on his feet. Um, we need not have mourned his passing. He's he's found a pretty good job. There was some talk that he was going to uh, head up uh, the AFL. Jack, um, CEO there. Is that serious? I always thought that was a bit unlikely myself. It's a bit unlikely. Good Carlton man, must be said. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, no, he's, a, he's, a, he's very much a football fan. He was a pretty fair tennis player. I think he was sort of a, not too far off turning pro when he was a yeah, kid. Yeah, no, he was, yeah. There was that in the offing, and he was good enough to, do, to, to, be, to be pro, but to turn pro, but uh, politics and one or two other things uh, got in the way. Um, uh, yeah, look, uh, we won't go into uh, who's going to be running the AFL, but they would almost certainly, as they generally do, uh, will be employing from within, I would think. Um, yeah. But first, first they'll pay um, a, a consulting firm uh, an arm and a leg to do a worldwide search, and then they'll find the bloke was sitting right behind him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll be an expensive search, and um, but uh, they go, oh yeah, well the deputy. They should. So, they yeah, should probably get it. They should ask us to do the to do the worldwide search because we can well, say, we yeah, we're doing we're, it. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing it. it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll jump and, 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 and we'll drop your email. We'll drop your yeah, and thanks we, for that ten million, but it's the bloke—it's the bloke <laughs> in the next desk, you know. I know. Yeah. Um, look, I've got to say that when I do, I have seen Josh at the footy, at the Carlton footy, and he's one of these head in the hands type barrackers, Jack. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> he, he doesn't have a positive view of the blues. He, whenever the other mob kick a goal, he's got the head in the hands. He's been kicked around a fair bit, it must be said, for the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, but. Well, I've, got, I've got a Geelong fan, mate. We used to watch the footy here at the, the, the pub in Hong Kong. It, whenever it got close in the last quarter, he'd be at the front door with the smokers. He just couldn't stand <laughs> to watch. <laughs> he to watch. I don't know why. I mean, Geelong got pretty good history of winning the close ones. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, uh, look, we have uh, inflationary pr- uh, uh, issues in Australia. That is the big economic uh, <clears throat> a problem that we've got. It's global. Uh, we've got inflation at 5.1 for the first quarter of this year uh, and it's bound to get higher. Anyone who's been uh, into a uh, supermarket of late would understand that. Um, and uh, while prices at the at the pump have just dropped a, dropped a, tatch, dropped a 
touch, you probably don't know what petrol costs in those games. It's bound to be expensive. It's about a buck eighty-five here, I'll say that conservatively, but buck eighty-five a litre. Um, the, uh, the, the 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 petrol here, the diesel's a little bit dearer. Um, <clears throat> Uh, what can the government do? It doesn't have too many tools at its disposal, does it? You know, you can, I guess you can restrain spending. There's a fiscal response to be made there. Um, And and, uh, we can talk about one of the issues they could easily... That's a little. That's a little bit hard to do. The restraining spending when you're a newly elected government who's made some promises that that, that, that creates its its timing issues. You know? Well, I didn't. I, we don't have it on the on our little document here, Jack. But we did take a look and had had a bit of a chat last week about the um, the childcare um, uh, uh, <coughs> repayments or rebates to uh, to young parents, um, and you know. Up to five hundred thousand family income, joint income, and you still get a little bit from the government. At twenty, at two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, you're getting almost a quarter of your childcare uh, uh, costs subsidised. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, and that I, is Labor policy. This. They went into the election with this. Yeah, and they'll do it, and it'll be popular. But I've never understood it myself. I don't understand. <laughs> the, the one thing I do hate about this is, is that when you do mention these figures that someone's on two hundred and fifty, or the family, the joint income, is on two hundred and fifty large a year, then you have these stories coming forward in the media about people on two hundred and fifty <laughs> a year saying, "Gee, you know, it's not that easy. It's a bit of a battle." Um, you know, uh, uh, and I, 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 I find that stuff immensely amusing, a little bit frustrating too. That if you're on, if you're on two hundred, if you're on two hundred and fifty a year, that you're somehow a battler. Mm. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? For me, I reckon two hundred and fifty is almost the cut-off point. You know, if you're on two hundred and fifty, you shouldn't receive a cracker from the government. Nothing. No, I don't. I've never quite seen the point for people who are on those sort of incomes, um, paying the money to government, government fiddling around with it for a while and giving you some of it back, and all the rest of it's being spent in Canberra on public service salaries. I never quite understood that. Yeah, look, it, it seems to be a pretty poor use of money. What we might do, Jack, is uh, go through the childcare policy in some detail yep. next week uh, yep. and uh, and have a look at that. See, uh, see if we can make some sense of it. <laughs> I guarantee you, whatever what, what we will provide labour policy, and it doesn't make sense. It does make sense at that seventy five thousand uh, dollar family income level, where you know a great deal. I think sort of something like ninety three percent of of, yep. of uh, childcare um, uh, 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 costs are, are, are subsidised and rebated, um, but up at that two hundred and fifty level and beyond, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I suspect there is one place that makes sense, Jack. Where's that? At the ballot box. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even think it's a vote winner. I really okay. don't think it's uh, a vote winner. We'll I'm, talk I'm, about that uh, next week. My, my suspicion is, is we'll move on to it. Now, yeah, I see you asking whether the RBA moved quickly enough. Yeah. And, and what I'd say about that is I was, I was reading a couple of articles. Wisdom and hindsight, obviously, from a lot of anal- analysts. Yeah. But I, I was reading a couple of articles over the weekend about what's happening in the EU. 
and um, their inflationary pressures are much worse than Australia. They range yeah. from uh, well over nine nine percent, kind of the floor, up to twenty percent in um, uh, in the east of the EU yes. areas. Much uh, worse um, in the east, yeah. Um, uh, and um, and they were ripping into their central bank uh, and saying. All the articles are ripping into their central bank and they've moved much, much too slowly. They should be looking at what the Americans have done and what the Australians have done, who've got this about right. <laughs> okay. That, that, uh, those measures uh, or, the, or that, uh, uh, that, that discussion hasn't made its way to Australia because there has been a great deal of criticism of the RBA to the point now where it is currently being reviewed and assisted by the Treasury. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, we do have 40% of Australians uh, who've rolled off record low mortgage rates uh, and, uh, and loans with negative equity. Those are the ones where you basically borrow 100% of the, the cost of the dwelling yeah. uh, to buy it uh, are the most likely to fall into default. But we have no, no strong rise in defaults on the available data and I suspect that might go through a, a, an increase um, in, in perhaps the third and fourth quarters of this year and beyond. I can remember having a chat with a, uh, a, a, a bank chap um, back in the early 1990s and we were talking about uh, real estate um, uh, prices in inner Melbourne where we were both resident in those days, Jack. Yes. And, um, and he said, you know, there's basically no real market in, uh, in housing in a fair bit of inner Melbourne because... Between the four big banks, we own a lot of it <laughs> well, yeah, <they laughs> in, in residential well, housing. He, he says, we effectively own a hell of a lot of it and we're just not moving it because if we all move to default on these loans, there would be a catastrophic drop in prices. Yeah, the way it works is you, uh, if you go 90 days in a, into, uh, into arrears, then that is the time that a bank can pull a pin on you. They don't always, of course, Jack. No. And sometimes and, and, and they go he under. Was, he was giving me the very strong message that we were not doing that because um, uh, we figured that the collectively they figured that the, the market would recover, uh, interest rates would come down, um, and um, the, the problem would diminish of its own accord or of its own momentum. So they well, wouldn't well, be moving loans to were at cook. 17%, in a yeah. vastly unregulated um, um, Vastly closed, more closed market than than, than we have now. But yeah. interest rates are about. I think official uh, interest rates got to seventeen percent uh, at that stage. Credit card yeah. and all that sort of stuff much higher. But um, but it did come down really quickly. That's the yeah. that's the benefit. And all those people who could hang on did hang on. Yes. Uh, and uh, in terms and, of equity, uh, you know, twenty years later, <laughs> happy days. And, and and he was right. The the, the banks yeah. played that pretty well. Yeah, yeah. They have, look, they have to be sort of socially responsible in many ways too. And the other thing is, they don't want to be um, large-scale landowners. Um, no, they don't, because it comes with all sorts of problems. Yeah. Um, but um, yes, look, we'll keep an eye on all of this. You know, the next what are, we are probably about three weeks away from. Uh, an announcement on inflation. I would expect it to go up, but it, it, I, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the US rate, which is just on nine. Uh, the, the, the next US figure comes out this week. They've got a whole series of uh, economic 
figures coming out this week. Ours can't be far away. Yeah, yeah, ours can't be far away either. I mean, obviously, uh, the end of the financial year occurred almost four weeks ago. Now we're recording on the 25th of July. Jack, COVID, you've had a shocker in Hong Kong with COVID. Uh, Australia was wide open and bounteous uh, in the meantime, but we have got very, very high numbers now in uh, terms of infections, in terms of hospital uh, hospitalizations and ICUs, uh, ICU admissions, uh, and I'm really responding to a, a, a John Hewson piece from the Saturday paper uh, where he claimed. Oh, is that, that where John Hewson's fetched up? Yes, yeah. So, so yeah. he's too left. He's too left wing for the nine newspapers now. Is he's gone to the Saturday paper? Found his niche. I mean, it's the old. He's, he's gone the inverse, hasn't he? I mean, the other way, as you get older, you, you tend to become more right-wing, you know, and, yeah, and some, look, and some I, of us sort of barge our way beyond sort of Genghis Khan. He seems to be heading heading all the yeah, way to uh, Vladimir Lenovich, Vladimir Lenin. He'll be writing for the Green Left Weekly or is, is, the, is, the, is the Tribune, the Communist Party paper, still published <laughs> in Australia? He'll be writing for them, sir. You know. I, I, he's not down the Southern Highlands anymore, but he used to be. I bump into him. He's quite an agreeable fellow. Um, uh, but, uh, look, uh, his piece, and look, he's not the he's not on his own here, Jack, uh, uh, saying that the uh, state and federal governments are ignoring medical advice by not imposing mask mandates. And uh, we saw uh, uh, Dan Andrews interviewed yesterday, or I did uh on, uh, on SBS uh, news service, actually, and uh, he, he he said he's not telling people, he's asking, uh, please put on a mask in a um, in, in an enclosed area in an in in, in indoors, and uh, he also said, and he made a very good point, I think, and I wish that one of the journalists had have asked him for a bit more information, but he said mask mandates are incredibly difficult to police. Yeah, look, um, we have a sort of a mask mandate here, although, to be fair, it was a community mask mandate before it became an official one. That is, you couldn't get on a bus or hop into a taxi without a mask on. Because the driver uh, wouldn't have you. No? The drivers wouldn't have you on either case. Mm. Uh, but then it became official. Um, I, I do notice that two or three days ago, Japan hit 200,000 cases a day. Wow. Uh, um, and while, they don't have, while they've never had a mask mandate in Japan, they have almost universal mask wearing. Yeah. Um, um, and, and and to be to be fair, they have ma- they had mask wearing long before COVID. There's a oh well, they, these are learned behaviours, aren't they? Yeah. Whether it was from uh, bird flu uh, or, or one of the other, or, or, or the slightest sniffle, a bit of tickle in your throat, you put your mask on before you go to work. That's just so. being responsible, isn't it? Yeah, really? yeah that's and, and they live in a in a little bit of a crowded place, and, and Hong Kong's been much the same. Mm. But two hundred thousand cases a day. All that mask wearing, it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Yeah, I, I think I think Andrews is right. Firstly, you don't want your wallopers uh, spending all their time on these rather no, trivial matters. No, that was a mistake they made in Victoria in particular during lockdown, was yeah. to be way too heavy-handed with police enforcing rules like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they, they were given, you know, the police were given the opportunity to... Um, uh, to, uh, on occasions, be heavy-handed, I would say, but 
it is an incredibly difficult thing to enforce. I mean, obviously, people are visibly not wearing masks and so forth. So it's not. It's just a matter of it's not a good use of police time. You've only got limited numbers of these people and they should be concentrating on serious crime. They could uh, go back to recriminalising burglary of uh, small items, you know, the, which has been decriminalised in Australia for about 25 years. You know? Well, we're seeing a lot of these things like, you know, mask fines and things being being thrown out now anyway. So, yeah, it's, it, it really has to come down to making a personal decision and... And when you make that decision, and I made that decision uh, a week or so ago, Jack, when I go into the shopping centre and, you know, into indoor areas and so forth, besides pubs and restaurants, of course, and not much point doing it there, um, I'll, uh, I'll pop a mask on. But I also, when you make that decision, you're also going to make another decision. And I said, well, I can't do anything about anyone who doesn't want to wear a mask. That's just not my sphere of... Of, of, of influence, you know. I, I, I have no ability to influence uh, other people. I'm not going to make a personal choice myself. Well, so we all wear our masks. Uh, we had a bit of a gathering, a couple of gatherings over the weekend for a chap who's one of our number who's leaving to go to Singapore. And we all wear a mask happily to the to the restaurant uh, on Friday night or to the pub on Saturday night, as the case may be. Pop them in your back pocket when you get there um, uh, and stand around and have a few drinks. Yeah, well, so, that, <laughs> it's, you're not going to be able to drink with them. I mean, well, you could. You no, can sort of strain no, we, we, your liquids. You, well, you, you're going to spill even more than normal <laughs> if you do that. You know? yeah, so, look, yeah, I, I think the, the, the government's way is the right way, and that is just to, to sort of but, but to, to make let, allow people to make their own decisions based on good advice. I guess it, it comes down to that sort of communication again. Uh, there are a number of sort of sub-variants that are pretty unpleasant uh, in COVID and it is putting extraordinary pressure uh, on our public health system. Um, but uh, the best way to do this is not... Well, certain, no one's even talking about lockdowns. There's no... no, no no call for oh, I, that, think, I think there's no there's no market for that. No political market for lockdowns oh, almost no. anywhere. Too know, many elections. Too many elections. Yeah, yeah no. I mean, I, I think I think people have, people feel they've done enough in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, yeah. That, that's not, again, that's not Australia specific. That's the same, pretty much around the world. Yeah. Look, and look, we do have those high rates of vaccination. What we don't have is is very high rates of uh, boosters and maybe that's another thing that uh, the government and and, and they have been uh, telling people they've reduced the uh, uh, the requirement or the age requirement for, for for boosters urging people to get their third and fourth uh, I went down to the doctors and uh, and having had COVID about four weeks ago they said you can't get one for 12 weeks. So they're telling you you can't become reinfected uh, within 12 weeks, which I don't know stands up statistically. But anyway, there we are. Like a um, lot of things, Jack, they've been making this up as we go along because <laughs> we don't really know. WHA's are from 12 to 4. Um, and, uh, so once the infection occurs, you can get, uh, can get a, a boost after that. Uh, I'd also oh, they'll urge... just close the, they'll just close the borders again if they get three cases. <laughs> well, look, if Fremantle keep going poorly, they won't be involved in the finals, yeah. uh, so they might just have to do that. But um, yeah, look, I I, I, uh, I would also urge our listeners, uh, particularly of a certain vintage, without being um, without being cruel about this, uh, go and get a flu shot too. 
um, mm. because there's some a particularly unpleasant strain of flu getting around Australia at the moment, particularly around Melbourne. I don't know how you've gone on, Jack, with some of your family, relatives, friends in Melbourne, but anyone who's hit been hit by that by that strain of the flu, they'll, they'll let you know all about it. Knock, knock you on your ass for a good week. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, now this is this is this is for the Labor faithful, isn't it? Uh, Tony Burke has said um, told, told the ABC that, uh, that well, uh, we've got the Australian. Let me start again. The Australian <coughs> Building and Construction Commission, Jack, a sort of rolling body of uh, with raw commission type powers overseeing the construction industry. And Labor has basically peeled back its powers uh, <coughs> with, uh, uh, and it didn't take go to the election, with a policy of um, dumping the oversight body altogether. Um, but as of yesterday, as Tony Burke announced, the ABC in its powers will be pulled back to the bare legal minimum, Jack. Uh, now, that, that is a sign, if we needed one, that the Labor Party is very much still in the thrall of the unions and the construction unions in particular. This has been something that's been going on for a very long time. When did I start in the, in the legal profession in the mid-'80s, shall we say? Um, and I was working for a law firm that represented the old Builders Labourers Federation back in the days when Norm Gallagher, Norm Gallagher. was, uh, in fact, we were, um, I was sort of a, the very, very junior lawyer helping out on Norm Gallagher's criminal trial for a bit. Um, uh, and Which he ended up having a holiday. He, he, did, he did get a holiday. Um, mm. uh, the... Um, I thought he was a bit unfairly treated, to be quite honest, but he did get a holiday. Yeah. Um, the, uh, by a fe- federal Labor government, by the way, too. It was. It was. Mm-hmm. And they moved to deregister the, the Builders Labourers Federation. And uh, the, the BLF were great clients. I think I think um, uh, <laughs> our firm went to the High Court four or five times in a single year. Right. And I don't think any other client ever has um, any other non-government clients ever um, sent their lawyers to Canberra to argue in the High Court that, that many times a year. So it's always been a, it's, it's been a lawyer fest right from those days. Um, mm. uh, so you wouldn't call it bad for society in that regard. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's a constant battle with the construction industry between um, keeping the thing working without too much union interference and um, uh, and not being over heavily handed with the unions either and there will be swings backwards and forwards as time goes on um, and no one's ever going to quite get it right. Well, the, the unions are really the only ones who bring health and safety into the construction industry, Jack, and that's another thing that's really overlooked, uh, regardless whether it's the ETU, the uh, CFM, MEU, uh, or whatever body it is, they're the, they're the ones actually bringing safety for workers onto building sites. Oh, I wouldn't say that the, the, the building unions are all bad by any means. No. I, I was... I was more than happy to to act for them. For, um, no, I know uh, you're for, not. For, uh, but it, it is one of those things that's 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 often overlooked. Um, that uh, without without the without the uh, unions uh, coming on site, you know, you can have some very very dangerous work situ- work work situations or work environments, uh, be they small, medium, or large construction sites. 
And, and on the other hand, um, uh, so that's one side of the coin. The other yeah. side of the coin is <laughs> that you can have some very heavy-handed tactics from the unions, uh, which really sort of start to come be, become more of a standover. Yeah. And not so much inside the union, but uh, outside it, in, as with pretty much any construction industry in any Western nation, you have some fairly uh, unpleasant pressures coming from um, uh, coming from organised crime, essentially, and we've, we're no strangers to that. And, and indeed, it was one of you know one of many disappointments with the uh, with the construction royal, the unions royal commission, which focused on construction unions to a very large degree, that none of those figures. And many of whom are household names were were asked to give evidence uh, under oath. Um, uh, some of these guys have been pulling, well, shall we say, they're involved in the business of mediation in the construction industry now, Jack. Mm. Uh, and uh, none, so of, them, so none of them got pulled. I, I, mm. I've always wondered about that. And what the hell was going on there? Yeah, well, there's never been a short. There's a fair bit of cash and easy money to be yeah. made in the construction industry. Um, you know, uh, that's a that's a bit like the racing industry. When you when you when you have a business like that or industry like that, you you are going to attract some dubious characters, <laughs> fairly yeah. fairly colourful characters, Jack. Yeah. Yes, yeah, we are, and that seems to be the case pretty much everywhere in the world. We are no yep. strangers to it. So so so, so I, I expect they'll wind it back, um, and then they'll discover. Um, in a couple of years, that so they better better wind it forward a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're getting um, rid of it. They're, they're, yeah. they're, 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 Tony Burke says just stripping their powers is a down payment on getting rid of it altogether. They did go to the election with this as policy, by the way. So yeah, and I'm and I'm sure they will get rid of it. But you, you've only got to go back. I can't remember if it was the Gillard or the Rudd government who bought in after having got gotten rid of the Howard version. They bought in their own version um, uh, um, uh, after a couple more years when things were getting out of hand again. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, if there were, if there ever is going to be a change of government, I suspect the ABCC will be back in some form or another. Anyway, um, over to media, Jack. Uh, and I was looking at the Oz Media Diary today, and word, and I'll quote from it: "Word has reached diary that Anthony Albanese will make his first trip as Prime Minister to visit ABC Chair Ita Butros at uh, ABC's Ultimo headquarters next week." And the mail out of Canberra is that he'll come bearing gifts for the broad, for the public broadcaster. Diary can reveal that Albanese will visit Ultimo on Friday week with the visit including his attendance at a gala ABC 90th birthday dinner at Studio 22. Uh, and that'll also involve his involvement on, on Q&A. Hmm. Uh, we're told the, the PM will use a visit and a keynote address at the dinner to formally announce that the government will protect the ABC and provide funding certainty, largely by moving from a three-year to a five-year funding cycle for the public broadcaster. And on it goes, Jack. Um, is this a case of uh, the ABC needing... Uh, needing support, funding support, needing moral support from the government after a long absence. <laughs> well, I found that found this all quite amusing. Uh, he also, uh, the spokesperson for the Prime Minister also said that they were in doing all this to safeguard the ABC against political interference. Um, and I was just wondering, um, when was the last time there was any political interference 
of the ABC rather than by the ABC. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but they have, you know, there were the complaints from ministers. They had a very. But, that, but complaints from ministers are just robust exchanges of views between the politicians well, and the media. It's, it's always just politicians saying we don't, we don't like what we've seen. And um, if we're going to talk about that, let's go back to the, ch- the two of the champions of the robust exchange of views between politicians and the media are on our side, on the Labor side of politics. Paul Keating was a, a master of the late night telephone call, um, uh, uh, and there was always plenty of expletives involved, but at least he was reasonably coherent and um, uh, and, and be- But the other fellow who's the world champion at it, um, was Prime Minister Rudd, who was notorious for ripping streds off, you know, and, and screaming down the phone at um, at editors from more generally, from the ABC. Yeah, more generally, I think not so much of the ABC, where there was a bit of love, maybe, arguably, anyway, but uh, in uh, commercial media, uh, News Corp used to, News used Corp to in particular. get on yeah. the blower there and, and give it a blast. But there were also, yeah, the Tur- also in the Turnbull government, there were... Uh, I would say fairly strong attempts to influence the ABC there. Um, we would obviously say that the ABC doesn't get things right all the time, and we might say that they don't get things right often enough nowadays. Is funding going to create better news, a better approach to their news broadcasting? Well, it depends what they spend it on. If they yeah. piss it all up against the wall on a 24-hour news service, then the yeah. answer to that's no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I would say that you could you know, trace their um, uh, uh, drop-off in, in, in news reporting uh, pretty much to the establishment of the ABC 24-hour news service, which is really about only, as I said before, it's only about 18 because they buy an Al Jazeera and BBC overnight. Um, yeah... What's, what's actually missing from the ABC um, in, the news crust- department. Is some, in the news department particularly mm. are some crusty old editors who'll say, listen, you've got to work a bit more on this story before yeah. it goes to air. I, I think there have been those decisions made. I, I know they have. I know there have been in the, some of the four, some of the four corners programs. What it doesn't want to be is is really it, it, it doesn't want to be a sort of tabloid shouty um, program or, or their, their current affairs, whether it be at seven thirty or four corners. Uh, don't want to be sort of shouty tabloid magazine style programs, nor do they want to be incredibly boring and dull. So they need to find that measure, and I think that you're absolutely right. Need a few hard old news guys to say, you haven't got this story quite right yet, you need to do A, B and C before we can run it. Um, And uh, and I think uh, that's something that that they're missing at the moment. Having had a little this, bit of experience, this, this is not about a political bias. It's not about a political approach. This is no, just not. just traditional, old-fashioned news reporting, where you know your, your editor said, "Well, yeah, that's all very well, but what about X and what about Y and what about Z?" You yeah. haven't you haven't covered that at all. You know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'd say that. I mean, I, I've sort of given the giant, given the game away there. I I tend to watch SBS News. From six thirty to seven thirty in the evening news bulletins there. That's the one that I watch. I prefer getting a, a, a larger chunk of world news that the SBS delivers. 
Um, but also find their uh, domestic reporting pretty good as well. So I've kind of dropped off the ABC. I will have a we'll have a glance at seven thirty most nights, but uh, it'll be a glance if uh, if some of the stories don't really leap off the page to me, Jack. Um, the other thing they could use is, frankly, is just a little bit more diversity of views because they do get a bit boring. Well, with any there's, there's a certain sameness about it. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think they sort of bend over backwards to a large degree to do that, but it, 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 it is, you know, it, it, the ABC is always trying to find its identity, whether it is uh, broadcasting to uh, in a, our inner suburbs, a progressive uh, left people, or is it is it going out to our rural uh, rural people? Is it going out to the regions? Uh, I think it always has this identity crisis about all of that. It I, does. I, what I'm really talking about is them just sharpening up their news reporting and yeah. their current affairs reporting. Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more about that. One thing I noticed was that they're going to spend eight million on sending uh, TV into the Pacific Islands, which I think is an excellent idea. Mm. Um, uh, 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 but Scott Morrison, actually, strangely enough, got something right. Um, he said he didn't. He didn't. He didn't think sending Q and A to Honiara would have improved the Solomon Islands uh, problem much. And, uh, and on that one, I agree with him. Uh, <laughs> Q and A is just about the most boring thing on television. Yeah, it's it's not good. It used to be sort of must watch TV for a brief period about oh, fifteen years ago. Um, uh, yes. Well, John, we we didn't actually talk about Scott Morrison. Check. He he's, he reckons government, <laughs> you know, deeply flawed. You know, not the sort of thing. He's a man of God. He's waiting for God to speak to him, uh, but he's uh, he's not pro government, Jack. And he's, and I, I mean, you know, he said this in a speech to to Margaret at the Margaret Court Group uh, in Perth a couple of weeks ago. And you think, mate, you were in government. You were leading a government. You know, you got to have some faith in it. Yeah, no, I think you can lead a government and have a belief that there's um, a lot that government tries to do today that it shouldn't. I think that's a, a quite legitimate point of view. At any event, he's going to become the most ex of ex-Prime Ministers. Oh, yeah, she's certainly with views like that. I mean, he wasn't just saying, you know, government should have a light touch. He was saying government's untrustworthy and unreliable. Yeah, all right. Uh, now, we have just one thing I wanted to raise. Yes. I, I opened, the, the, opened the, the newspaper this morning, at least in, in a digital sense, and once more there were more photos of how terrible things are in the uh, airports and airlines in Australia and how slow the service is and the queues outside getting into the airports. Um, and all the comments were indicating, this is all Alan Joyce's fault, this is Macquarie Bank's <laughs> fault because they own the Sydney airport. And I'd just yeah. like to point out to yeah, our the race to get to the Sydney airport too, Jack. Yeah, um, uh, just like to point out to our listeners that if you open uh, the newspapers in the UK and Ireland, anywhere in Europe or anywhere in the US or Canada, you're going to find exactly the same story. This is a worldwide phenomenon. It's been caused because all of these organisations laid off staff during COVID, uh, and now they can't get them back. I think the the, uh, the 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 data that I looked at, so one in five flights were being cancelled. That's, yeah, that's and it's much the same with Heathrow or yeah, Gatwick I'm sure or, it is, or Shipol or anywhere you go. It's got to be very frustrating for travellers, and it and it and it uh, sort of works on my theory 
that people are at their actual actual worst at an airport uh, in terms yeah. of personal behaviour. Can I just put in a plug for Hong Kong? The one place that there are no queues <laughs> at the airport um, uh, and there's no long lines queuing up outside in the hot sun, and that's in Hong Kong yeah. because we have bugger all flights. <laughs> not, not a lot of flights coming in. And when you do come in, uh, you frog marched yeah. off for a seven-day spell in a hotel yeah, somewhere. that's right. So that, that, if you want to solve that problem in Australia, just go to a seven-day quarantine. <laughs> Interstate travel and all, you know. Yeah, look, I'm, uh, I'm heading down to Melbourne, Jack, and doing it uh, next month and doing it with the uh, – uh, with with some concern that I might be, I don't like spending time at airports. So I like to get there just about uh, the time you're supposed to board and jump on and jump off and get out as soon as possible. But there, uh, there, there was a time when people liked to go to the airport in Melbourne, Jack. I, I oh, when know. I was a kid, it was it was an excursion, you know, yeah, great no, place to go. Well, uh, I think I'm not sure you were old enough to participate in this, but. And there was a time when the Essendon, the old Essendon Airport, was yeah. a very popular place on a Sunday, um, and that's because the um, had a license. Uh, it had a license to have, mm. to have to have a cold beer on a Sunday. It was the only place in the town that you could get a, a legally get a cold drink on a Sunday. So people used to pop out there just for that. But. Um, they've never been great places to I, go. I, my only memory of Essendon, and I must have flown through there, but my only memory of Essendon Airport was being out there for LBJ's arrival, Jack. Oh, were you waving a little flag? Yeah, my, my mother dragged my brother and I out there to stand amongst the throng and uh, go all the way with LBJ. Excellent. Over to I, I, I wish I wish there was a photo. <laughs> my father, this and this uh, won't surprise you. My father did not attend, and no. was very dirty on the fact that we were that, that my mother yeah. was taking us. Yeah, out. that's that's why I'm that's why I'm still sitting here rather shocked that you were there. I can't imagine Uncle Jack uh, being sat, too keen on that plan. Sat in a chair and uh, didn't speak uh, didn't speak to uh, his wife for for a number of days. Yeah. Uh, in sport, Jack. Uh, there goes Billy, Valet Billy Pickin, the, the great Collingwood uh, centre half back, whose catch cry was as he'd come to a marking contest. Here comes Billy. Yeah, very he sad. Was wonderfully, really. wonderfully eccentric, wasn't he? You know? He was. He was just one of those blokes who would never shut up during a game. He used to drive Mark McClure, man. I know I've heard McClure speak about that. They used to have some very famous duels. Those two. Had some, crack, had some cracking jewels, those two. Yeah, you know? yeah, and probably you'd call it all even in the end. Uh, maybe maybe a touch to hit uh, McClure, just a touch ahead because they won a few more premierships. But he played 207 games for the Magpies between 1974 and 1983. He's, he did, did play briefly at Sydney. I don't know if you remember that. Um, yeah. did, did, did a season there, I think, did he? Play a few yeah, games? might have been, might have been a, yeah, a couple of seasons there, I think. Uh, uh, but he was well or truly at the end of his football career there. High flyer, great mark, uh, great defensive. Great mark, terrible kick. <laughs> wasn't it? Wasn't his? Wasn't his? Uh, 
wasn't his, uh, um, um, you know, top of the resume skill. But, um, but you know, he... Well, he but, it was a, but it was a different world in those days because they weren't playing possession footy, keepings off footy. So um, you could just thump it down the field and yeah. the other blokes had to... other blokes to had another to earn, marking contest. Yeah, yeah. Had to, to, uh, other blokes had to earn their own footy, you know. Um, uh, so... Uh, he would need to improve his kicking skills to get a game today, but he was a fantastic mark, you know. Um, oh, brilliant mark. And, and his son, of course, was a uh, premiership uh, footballer at the uh, Western Bulldogs, and he was a really tough, hard footballer too. In fact, he had to give it away because his body gave way. You know, he just been yeah, throwing well, I, it in, getting belted. I, I, I never met Billy, but I had a few pals who knew him because he, he liked to punt, liked the races. Um, yeah. I think he... Uh, and uh, and they all said he was a terrific bloke, and no reason to doubt that at all. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, just to add to uh, Collingwood's um, uh, grief, the club's grief, Colin Britt, who played 110 games, half-back flanker, winger, wasn't he, Jack? Um, uh, he was de- on, on the half-back flank, I think, in the 1970 grand final, which you'll probably re- enjoy remembering, but the yeah. Collingwood fans won't. No, no, you didn't. I actually was, uh, I remember seeing him uh, play uh, and uh, and John Nichols had to get involved uh, there with uh, Con, who was, he was probably uh, giving uh, giving Big Nick a couple of stone. And um, and uh, I think uh, Con Britt copped a whack across the <laughs> the whack across the chops for his oh, trouble. Oh, you know. Well, I, look, I think there's fighting out of your weight division, and then there's fighting out of your weight division. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. you wouldn't be taking on Big Nick. <laughs> well, Crackers Keenan always talked about that moment when you looked into those baby blue eyes and you knew you were in trouble. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, Collingwood did have the black armbands on uh, on Sunday up against your mob, Jack. I watched the game. Oh, God. Um, and Collingwood did it again. They've come from nowhere and won. But the last minute where uh, Essendon, Essendon kicked the point and the ball came in, well, it wasn't even a minute. It was it was probably 30 seconds where Essendon just did not set up a defensive zone. Uh, the ball the ball went from a short pass from uh, from kick out to, uh, to a bloke who could run. Uh, and uh, within another possession, the ball uh, the ball was uh, in the hands of uh, of uh, Elliot. Uh, the Jamie small, Elliot, Jamie lovely Elliot. kick after the siren. Yeah, it was a lovely kick after the siren. But he outmarked two blokes who made no body contact with him. It was the sort of thing a, a battling side, the sort of mistake a battling side would make. Um, and uh, yeah, Collingwood got the points. <clears throat> yeah. Um, they're going okay, the boys. Well, they're, they're fourth at the moment, nine in a row, um, uh, and uh, that doesn't, you know, I, I was, I was on the bombers. I was so, <laughs> so invested uh, because Carlton would have moved up a spot, and Collingwood would have moved down three had they lost that game. Um, because their percentage is not great, obviously, because they're only winning games by a couple of points. Mm. Um, but yes, it was just a mistake on on Essence on Essence uh, part. They didn't set up the zone, and then they did have one back, did have an extra break back, but neither he or his uh, or his teammate made an impact in that marking contest. They had to put some body pressure on. Well, on, well, on these da- these these days teams practice for these uh, scenarios. They, they actually they actually workshop these scenarios so they're, they're, they're worse errors than they used to be but yeah 
Anyway, it's it's all panning out. It's all part of uh, football's uh, rich rich festivities, Jack. Uh, Always good to see Collingwood. I felt felt sorry for the Richmond. Was it the Richmond kitty uh, earlier in the weekend who took the mark? And unaware oh. that the siren was about to go, well, he wouldn't have got, on. He knew he wouldn't have got the distance. I think that that was kind of, you know, yeah, yeah. He he would have been devastated. But Richmond, Richmond certainly blew that one as well, mm. which leaves us with, uh, and, and that, that that puts them just out of the eight now. They're ninth, uh, and it is a, 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 a bit of blockage in that, uh, certainly in the bottom half of the eight now, Jack. Um, well, we go from the top: Geelong, uh, Melbourne, Fremantle, uh, 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 Brisbane. Sorry, Fremantle. Uh, oh no, Collingwood. Then Fremantle, uh, then Sydney, then Carlton, and Western Bulldogs have pushed themselves into the eight this week. Is that the way it's going to be? Do you reckon? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, if if you're starting the finals left. If you're starting the finals tomorrow, um, you'd say Geelong would be pretty red-hot favourites because they're in slashingly good form. Yeah, uh, and who else, is, who else is in good form? Brisbane are coming good a little bit. Swans are in great form. Um, they are. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and probably of the ones just outside the eight, probably Richmond are probably still look the best, I think, maybe the Bulldogs, Richmond and the Bulldogs. Um, but it's kind of hard to know. It's four weeks yeah. away. Yeah, yeah look, it, 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 a month of footy before we're going to know. They don't hand out premierships in July, Jack. That's one no, thing. they don't. You can say, and if you're in blinding form now, there's always that question, you might not be in blinding form. In, but, but but Geelong are going September. very, very nicely. They are the best contested footy side going around at the moment, no doubt mm. about that. They're very, very good at the contest. Um, in, over to the NRL, Jack, and there's some there's some new faces. Well, some faces from the old some Storm are now fifth, and they've been in the one two for the pretty much the last ten years. We've got the Sharks at three, the Panthers who are dominating the competition. Well, it's Panthers and the rest, really, isn't it? You know, and the, I mean, the Broncos haven't played finals for years. They're at fourth. Uh, Rabbitohs sort of hanging around there, and and, uh, and the Eels and, and the Roosters are starting to play some good footy. So that's got a lot of promise to it, doesn't it? You know that that, uh, it does. that final series. Look, there's, there's three three teams outside the eight who you know um, thereabouts, are, yeah, yeah, who are thereabouts. But the bookmakers don't seem to agree. You know, um, uh, the Raiders and the Dragons are on equal points with eights place Roosters, but they're a hundred bucks to hundred to one to win the the premiership. So um, the putters, at least. Um, uh, um, uh, have ruled them out pretty much. Yeah, the, the, the Roosters, you know, probably on paper better sides than the, than the, than the next three, and that's it. Um, mm. <coughs> uh, sea Eagles, Raiders and Dragons. And, um, yes, it look, the Panthers look like the standout, but the Storm have really dropped off. They tend to a little bit um, uh, in and around state of origin, but the Panthers, Panthers have provided more players to both to both Queensland and uh, and New South Wales, and, and they seem to be going on their merry way. Uh, and they are even money to win the flag with uh, the next the next bet next on the betting line. The Cowboys at, uh, at basically well paying seven dollars fifty fifteen to two, and and then you've got then you've got uh, um, uh, the Storm still sort of, sort of hanging around there with favouritism, but they look like dropping into the Bottom half of the eighth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw 
I saw uh, Craig Bellamy uh, not looking his usual equable self um, uh, <laughs> uh, post uh, uh, post match um, you, at the weekend. You'd love to play him in a game of poker, wouldn't you? Because he, he really does give a fair bit away. The the other bloke, uh, the, the Raiders coach. Uh, look, he, he, I'd love to play him. Um, uh, the former Australian of New South Wales. Uh, Ricky Stewart. Ricky Stewart. Ricky, I'd love to play him uh, in a game of poker, mate, because he leaves all the emotions out there. He he just lets you know. And he'll often spend half a press conference just complaining about the refereeing. Yeah, he does. He's always got uh, <laughs> plenty to say. I remember... Uh, Years ago, uh, when I was still in Sydney, uh, a mate was in something called the Freddie Fittler box. Uh, he had tickets in this Freddie Fittler box, so Freddie would host this box for the Roosters. So you go up to the private box up at the, the, uh, the football stadium, the now demolished football stadium, and there'd be you know, beers and food and all that sort of stuff. And Freddie would take a few people down to the rooms before the game, before the Roosters games. And Ricky was coaching um, uh, uh, the Roosters at this stage. And uh, Ricky would come back up. Freddie would come back up with the people he'd taken down there, and Freddie would explain to the rest of us what what um, Ricky was, what, what Ricky's plans were for the game. So Freddie would go through a few of the more simple things that you know uh, Ricky had played. Then there was all this more complicated stuff that I couldn't understand, and none of the players could. <laughs> <laughs> Which was kind of Ricky in a nutshell, really. Well, my favourite Ricky Stewart story, Jack, uh, he was coaching the Roosters at the time and I uh, had popped down uh, with a mate uh, at the Lord Dudley Hotel in Paddington on a Friday afternoon for some refreshment. And, uh, you know, it was knock-off time, around about four or five anyway. And uh, there was Ricky with his, his coaching and I think from memory coaching the following day and there he was with his manager and uh, who I knew, and we had a bit of a chat, and I noticed Ricky he was absolutely blind drunk. He couldn't speak. <laughs> couldn't speak. Good preparation. Yeah. Good prep. Yeah, put in the hard yards there. Uh, thank God the players didn't do it, although sometimes they do in the NRL, Jack. Mate, great to have you with me again today. I think uh, we haven't solved a lot of the problems, but we have identified them, and uh, and uh, and we've gone through them with some excellent analysis pr- pr- uh, provided by you. Well done, mate. Cheers, mate. All right, mate. And, uh, and once again, we remind our listeners, just if you want to get in touch with the program with Jack and myself, uh, drop us a line at the uh, condition release program at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter. DMs are open. And thank Especially you. Especially if you're going to have a crack at me. <laughs> yeah, well, Collingwood, Collingwood supporters can come and have a crack at me. I've been dealing with those people for 60 years. Uh, and I have no fear of them. Um, uh, but, look, uh, yes, we uh, we, we uh, do uh, do appreciate any sort of correspondence that we do receive. So flick us a line if you want us to talk about something that we haven't mentioned in the program, some issue. We did sort of education on that basis last week. Yeah, just drop us a line. You know how to do that. Good on you, Jack. Talk to you next week. Cheers, mate. See you, listeners.